You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician and editor-in-chief of Maine, Maine Home Design, Old Port, Ageless, and Moxie Magazines. Love, Maine Radio show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com, grownupgirl.com, where you can get personalized guidance and encouragement for growing a simple yet vibrant life through free advice, workshops, and mentoring programs with local experts. You deserve to shine. Go to grownupgirl.com now to learn about our available programs and classes designed just for you in the Portland area. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port, 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the works of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where everybody is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Dr. Dan Landry trained and worked within the Harvard system in Boston as a pediatric anesthesiologist prior to joining Spectrum Healthcare Partners in 1994. Over the next two decades, he managed the largest division within Spectrum and served as president and chairman of the board. This past January, he gave up his administrative positions within Spectrum to focus on his clinical practice and advocate for healthcare reform within Maine and throughout the United States. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And you and I happen to be neighbors. We are, yes. Yes, we get to see each other out. You're walking your dog with your wife, Deborah, on a regular basis. In our little corner of heaven, huh? Yeah, it's a pretty amazing place, Little John Island. Um, You grew up in Maine. You grew up in Sanford. I did. I grew up in Sanford, spent uh, the first 18 years there, went to high school in the public high school. Um, And we, after almost 20 years in Boston, decided to come back. So what caused you to leave Maine in the first place? I'm assuming it was educational. It was educational. Um, I had a, uh, I received a uh, degree in mechanical engineering from University of Maine um, and then took a couple of years and uh, was a ski bum in Vail and uh, then went to med school in Boston and then trained in Boston. My wife was in school in Boston as well and uh, but then after training and working for a few years, we came back. Uh, did you meet Deborah also in Boston? Uh, no, we were acquaintances in college, only acquaintances. And then I met her on the T of all places while we were in Boston and said, I know you. <laughs> and then history from there. So is she also from Maine? No. Well, uh, she grew up in Pennsylvania, but spent the last couple of years of high school in uh, York and then went to University of Maine as well. So for you, there's something very personal about health care reform within our state. E- yes. Uh, having participated in uh, health care for more than 30 years. So you're referring to my injury? Or well, no, I was referring to just being from Maine, but now oh, that you've yes. said injury, yeah. I'm going to have to ask you <laughs> yeah. about that. Oh, yeah. oh, oh I, yeah. Uh, two and a, uh, this is a word of caution for everybody that owns a ladder. Two and a half years ago, I fell off a ladder and broke both my legs uh, and was a uh, participant on the other side of health care. 
so saw how, how it worked. Uh, I was lucky in that I received uh, excellent health care. Um, but my injury, uh, this didn't propel me to, 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 to go into healthcare economics, but illustrates the problem. I was injured in uh, the beginning of December. Um, my health plan, probably like everybody listening, has a large deductible. Um, and I incurred roughly $15,000 of out-of-pocket expenses because it was on the end of one year and into the next. Um, I am extraordinarily fortunate that I could pay for that. Very few people in the state, in this country, can pay for that. Less than half of the people in the U.S. have $1,000 or more in the bank at any one time. Uh, healthcare is the leading cause of bankruptcy in, uh, in the United States. And of those, 62% uh, file for bankruptcy based on healthcare, 75% of those have health insurance. So I'm passionate about health policy because I believe that um, if we don't reform the healthcare system in this country, uh, it threatens everything we know. It threatens our infrastructure, our educational system, our social programs, and no matter which side of the aisle you find yourself on, it will threaten programs dear to you. So we have to, we have to fix this healthcare issue. Are there a lot of people in your field, which is very subspecialized, pediatric yes. anesthesiology, yes. are there a lot of people in your field who are interested in health policy? I don't believe there are many physicians that are interested in health policy per se on a regional, state, or national level. That said, I think physicians are interested in health policy in the manner in which it affects their patients. So, um, you know, a, a physician such as yourself who, who works on the front lines of medicine and deals with patients on an everyday basis, every patient uh, that is undergoing treatment, it has been shown that the finances of that care is forefront in their mind, much more so than whether or not they're getting better. There was a study done on breast cancer, women with breast cancer, and that w of uh, whether it's treatment uh, toxicity, treatment efficacy, or treatment cost, the majority of women chose treatment cost as a determining factor of the type of treatment they would receive, which I think as a physician, that's not acceptable. That's just not acceptable. Yeah, it's actually rather scary because if you have somebody who's deciding that she can't actually go toward the type of treatment that she really needs, right. um, then it, it might not even be a cost-effective way of dealing with it, even in the, in the short term. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So it's a, it's a, pervasive, it's a pervasive problem. <laughs> when you were growing up, did you know that you wanted to be a doctor? Well, interestingly enough, I have a, a big brother, David, uh, who's seven years older than I am. Sorry, David, but <laughs> he, uh, uh, he and his wife, who is also uh, a physician, she's an internist. Um, so David went into medicine, and I've kind of modeled myself after my older brother. I grew up without a father, so David was a, was a father figure, so I modeled myself after him. He went into medical school, um, went in to be a physician, and... Uh, I followed in his tracks, and I was thinking of becoming a uh, 
orthopedic surgeon because of my background in engineering, and both he and his wife said, no, go into anesthesia. <laughs> why, why anesthesia? What was his background? Um, he was a biologist in college. They just said uh, it was um, interesting, uh, allowed flexibility, which it does, more flexibility than um, uh, other specialties, uh, and it was interesting. So I'm glad I did it. They were right. It, some, what you're talking about is something that um, has become an important consideration in medical school generally, which mm -hmm. is lifestyle. Right. And many of the people who are going through, being a doctor is hard enough, but right. as you're going through, if you've incurred a lot of debt and you also um, would like to have a family at some point, you do have to start looking around to decide, can I really even afford right personally and financially yeah. to be a primary care doctor. Right. It's very difficult for, for folks. Um, and I think the people that are, the younger folks that are coming out of medical school have it, certainly have a better balance than I did. I'm not going to speak for you. Uh, but um, I remember I was just at the end of the era when the term resident physician versus visit was coming out of vogue, meaning a resident physician being one in training lived at the hospital. And the visit, which is the staff person, came and went. And that was the norm. And that's just not healthy. And I was a resident right before they changed the resident work mm -hmm. hour um, right. rules, which meant that we were still, even though we weren't technically residents of the hospital, we were there a lot more than the current right. residents are. 120 hour a week was not uncommon. Do you remember that? I do. I lived it. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. And now, uh, I think rightfully so, folks coming out are saying, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And I think it's better for them, better for... But that raises the cost of care because it requires more physicians to deliver the same care. So it's a conundrum. <clears throat> when I was talking to um, a woman who finished residency just a little bit ahead of me as a surgeon, and I had trained in family medicine, she mentioned that one of the problems with the f resident work hour um, rules was that it's somebody still needs to be taking care of the patients. So the work gets shifted back on to um, younger, typically younger doctors, but also sometimes right. older doctors mm -hmm. who have already done their own version of 100-hour right. work weeks. Right. So the issue seems to be that we can move things around so that somebody else ends up dealing with whatever needs to get dealt right. with, but it's still there. It's still there. There are still patients. They still mm -hmm. need care. It's still going to be expensive. Right. The, the solution is, which primarily hospitals, which are now the largest employers of physicians, the solution is to hire more, either physicians themselves or uh, uh, advanced practitioners. But the money's not there. Although uh, physician cost of health care is only 11% of total expenditure. Um, so it's not an overwhelming cost. But still, hospitals operate on a very, very narrow profit margin. Most hospitals in Maine are uh, losing money. So the expenditure for additional physicians is just not going to happen. We've talked about some of the issues. What are some of the other issues that you've um, learned about during the time that you spend in administration and also in the study that you're doing um, 
at the London School of Economics, where you're getting a degree in health policy and economics? Um, it's a broad question. Uh, what have I learned? I've learned that um, I firmly believe, strongly believe, that physicians should be in leadership positions in hospitals and healthcare. Um, there is a growing trend that that is occurring, but uh, physicians uh, understand what it means to take care of patients and what is necessary. Like this conversation you and I just had about the need for more physicians. We inherently understand that, and administrators look at it more as dollars and cents. Um, I think uh, non-physician administrators certainly have their heart in the right place and are doing the right thing. This is not to malign them. I just think that uh, physicians have a deeper understanding of what it means to take care of patients, and so they should be in charge. Um, uh, and in Maine, there's only one CEO of a hospital who's a physician, and that's uh, Mark Foray up at um, Waldo Penn Bay. And he's, um, you know, and that's a trend, that's a movement in the right direction. Um, uh, let's see what else you'd ask me what I'd learned. So I think physicians should be more involved in leadership, uh, but it's hard for physicians because we don't have the training. Um, it's taken me 15 years of on the job education of myself, prim you know, primarily self-education, to learn about health policy and finance. It is very, very complicated. Um, who gets paid for what and why they get paid. Um, and this, this, my studies at London School of Economics have given me an insight into how other countries are tackling these problems. Most other countries around the world are coalescing around uh, a capitated payment model, uh, meaning uh, I get paid X number of dollars to take care of you, and that's all the money there is. Um, and the U.S. has not moved in that direction. But there is certainly, uh, every country in the world is dealing with high pharmacy prices and high increasing health care costs. But some countries are doing it much better than us. And so it's, these studies have given me a more global view, which has been helpful. How do we encourage more physicians to take positions of leadership within the health care system? Um, that's a, that's a that's very difficult. I've been wrestling with that for a long time. Um, uh, it is, well, first of all, most of the times when physicians work in leadership positions, as you're moving up and gaining experience, they're almost always unpaid positions. So they're just tacked on to the end of the day. Um, and so uh, an emotionally drained physician who then has to sit through three hours of meetings every night is very difficult. So there could be uh, companies need to invest in young leadership. There's no question about that. So it's really an investment that needs to be made. Um, and we need to find leaders and invest in them, but also train them as well. Um, send them to school, send them to programs to learn how to manage and unfortunately, in my experience, I don't have experience managing other folks other than physicians, but physicians are a very difficult group to manage. <laughs> very, very difficult. Um, and people that have managed other sorts have told me that they're one of the more difficult, although I don't, as I said, I don't have experience with anybody else, but I will say they are very difficult. The job of a, the old management style, a physician 
expected of their manager don't allow change to occur. And that's still the mantra to some degree. And in this day and age, that's impossible. Change not only is occurring, it has to occur. And so um, physicians have got to be on board with what's coming. And that's hard. I can't really deny anything that you've just said. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I've seen this personally um, as a physician chafing a little bit mm-hmm. under management, although yeah. I have a lot of respect for the people that right. are managing my practice and ultimately me. Yeah. Um, I think there's a different mindset that we are that we have as a result of our training, perhaps. Right. And there's a different level of responsibility that's expected of us. Yes. And so it's a strange dynamic right. to be able to go back and to, on the one hand, be responsible, in your case, for um, putting children under mm-hmm. anesthesia so, and keeping them alive long enough to get their surgeries and then bringing them back out right. again and making sure that they're in good shape. And in my case, trying to um, work with women who have new breast cancer diagnoses right. or manage people's heart disease. Right. And these are people's lives that you have responsibility for. Mm-hmm. So you're at you're tasked with being a leader and a protector. Right. Right. And it's hard to then have somebody come in and say, well, we need you to do this, this, and this. Exactly. It is very hard. And I think you and I are of a generation. I think it's going to have to be a generational change because our training was, you know, the captain of the ship model, right? You are the captain of the ship. You are in charge. Um, That woman that comes to you with heart disease, it is up to you to keep her healthy. And the shift now is in team-based approach. And you and I are not, we weren't trained that way. We're trained to be autonomous. Um, And so it's very difficult for... uh, doctors trained in our generation to make this shift to a team-based and um, not that you're you know I don't mean to say that people aren't good team players but team-based approaches you got to follow a protocol this is a pathway you got to follow it even though you may not agree with it Uh, and physicians are very bad at that they don't want to be told how to practice (laughs) right yeah well that's I'm I'm smiling because um, that I think that's true Um, Although I, I do actually like being a personally like being part of a team, and many right. of the physicians I work with enjoy being part of a mm-hmm. team, I think what I struggle with is at the end of the day, it's my medical license that right. ends up being at risk. Right. Um, the malpractice suits are largely filed against yes. physicians. Yes. So even though we are part of a team, if something goes wrong on the team, yeah. we still are taking responsibility for that. Yes. So do you see that shifting so that it enables us to feel more comfortable with the team-based approach? No. Uh, so it gets we're into the realm of legislation, and uh, you know that's a legislative effect. Um, I, I believe where healthcare is going is into a much more, we call it cookbook approach. It's much more... Uh, predicated on best evidence, uh, the, you know, you see the Watson project for the IBM that, um, you know, that Watson's now reading, uh, 
x-ray studies, pathology studies, recommending cancer treatments. Um, and I think the, uh, the cancer treatment is a, is a good example of no matter how good a physician or a team of physicians is, they cannot keep up with the literature that occurs in cancer medicine. It's just physically impossible. Um, so you need decision support. And physicians are, are uh, less and less uh, developing, making, and implementing the final decision as, as opposed to using a lot of these decision support tools. And I think that's what, I'm get, what I mean with uh, myself, for instance, uncomfortable with not having it in my head but relying on other things to tell me what the best thing to do is. I mean, I'm, I'm just not comfortable with that. And I think we, we have to be, and I think the younger generation is a little more comfortable than I am in that regard. Yes. What about the recent news of um, these organizations, the heads of these organizations coming together and deciding outside of medicine that they right. want to do something about medicine? Um, I can't tell you how glad you are you asked me that. So we've heard... I'll, I'll get to that. We've heard that we've relied on the government to help with health care. Uh, President Obama did the ACA, which, no matter how you feel about the politics, was a movement in the right direction in that he was putting a focus on health care. There is a problem. Let's try and fix it. Uh, as what happens in politics, it became partisan, and some people thought it was the worst thing, and some people thought it was the best. But it started the conversation. Um, but what was not, did not occur in the ACA, and certainly is not occurring in the debate to, today, is the cost of health care. So what they're talking about is who's actually going to pay for health care. They're not talking about the fundamental problem, which is the cost, which um, we pay almost 18% of our GDP to health care, whereas the next most expensive health care in a country is 10 or 11 percent. National uh, international average is around nine. So for every individual in the U.S., we're spending $10,000 a year on health care. So these companies, uh, you're referring to Amazon, J.P. Morgan, and um, Berkshire Hathaway, have come together um, to develop innovative ways for the delivery of health care. So why are they doing that? It gets right back to why health insurance was developed in the first place, which was to keep the workforce healthy and assure, ensure a workforce for companies and country. That, I mean, that, that is why health care uh, and insurance came about. These folks that employ millions of people can no longer afford health care for their employees. It's just too expensive. It's become the single largest expenditure for, the com for their companies. So they are coming up with new solutions. And I believe that healthcare reform will not occur through the government or through legislation. It's going to occur through avenues such as that. Um, insurance companies really don't have an impetus to change healthcare. They're simply a conduit for the money. Um, in Maine here, we have a number of uh, self-insured, we have a, a large number of self-insured companies initially. So self-insured meaning it's like BIW, they don't have insurance per se, they pay for it out of their pocket. Uh, and that's starting to trickle down to medium and small size companies that are taking on this risk so that they can control their costs even more. 
And so it's going to be innovations like self-insurance, these big companies that innovate. Uh, that is going to be where the, ref the reform is going to come from. I'm, I am convinced of that. And what's it going to look like? I don't know, although there is technology out there. Um, you can get an EKG done from your smartphone at home with a cardiologist reading in 30 minutes. You can do most things online. Um, there is an enormous amount that can be done. And hospitals and health systems are reliant upon the money coming into them uh, because they have such high fixed overhead that this disruptive innovation will have profound consequences for the hospital systems and the hospitals, particularly in a rural state like Maine. We, we no longer can support 39 hospitals. So healthcare reform is going to come from people like uh, Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and those folks that have the money to invest in it. That's where it's coming from. Well, you raise an interesting point because I, I enjoy taking care of the patients from Bath Iron Works, for mm -hmm. example, because they will come in, and I think also L.L. Bean, um, there's a few other major employers yeah. within the state, and the patients will come in and they will have been seen by their health coach. They'll right. have their numbers in front of them. I have a... I have a set of labs that have been done by these mm -hmm. patients. And so I'm already starting with more information right. than I would otherwise. Um, and that's really useful to me as a primary care doctor. However, the point that you're raising about it no longer uh, being money that goes into the medical system is a good one. So mm -hmm. if I am not ordering the labs and they're not being drawn by my hospital and not being run by my hospital, there's already a loss of a loss. profit. Right. So it'll be interesting to see how this yeah, all works out because you can't really pull a string in one part of the world, right. they say, and not feel it tug at the other. Right. And, and, and these companies are, you know, before they relied on the insurer and they thought the insurer was looking out for the best interest of finding the lowest cost, you know, they were or they weren't. It's immaterial at this point. But now their lab's a great example. They can send lab specimens essentially all over the country. So you find the lowest cost. And now consumers are starting to do that as well because, as I mentioned earlier when I got hurt, we now have, we are spending an enormous amount of out-of-pocket expenses, so people are starting to look for lower costs, lower cost lab work, lower cost uh, radiology services. And you go to the doctor and uh, the doctor may prescribe three tests and four medicines and people are saying why you know it's so there's there's much more consumerism in medicine uh, tends to be more outside of Maine because there's more choices outside of Maine than there is in Maine but it's coming well I will be interested to see as my son finishes medical school in a few years oh, really? um, Yes, to oh. see where things go with him. Yeah, good for I him. Know, I know my dad, he's 70-something years old. He's still practicing medicine. Oh, so wonderful. the landscape of medicine has just completely changed since he yeah. was starting. But um, And I know that you have two kids, Sam and Chris, who are 23 and 20. So mm -hmm. to know what the things are going to look like for our kids right. would be fascinating, I believe. It will be. And I think that... Um, you know, I, I wish the best for your son practicing medicine. Um, we absolutely need more physicians. I'm more concerned 
about our kids in their ability to pay for health care. If we continue on this trajectory, they won't be able to afford health care. They just won't. And, and if they can afford health care, it's going to be to the detriment of every other program. Um, that's my biggest concern. And if we don't change the trajectory, our kids and their families are going to really struggle with health in the future, their own health. Yes, and they're already starting with um, enormous educational debt, which is right. something that I thought I had large educational right. debt, which I will pay off until I'm probably about 70, right. is nothing compared to the next generation. Right. And and their incomes, you know, doctors are always going to make more money than uh, average and more money than most people, so we're really fortunate in that regard, but incomes for physicians are going to fall. They're going to fall. And so it's going to make the payment of that debt even more difficult. And therefore, fewer people are going to go into medicine. Yes. I mean, it's I think... It's discouraging, but I think that's I, the it's, case. I know. It's very true. And it is. It's hard. I mean, um, when I... St- I'm actually... I'm, as a doctor, me personally, making 20% less than I was when I started. When I was a brand new doctor. Right. When I knew much less. Right, right, they're, right. And they're paying me less for these years of experience. So... Despite the fact that healthcare costs go up on average yeah. of 5 to 6% a year. Yes. Physicians aren't seeing it. Right. So anybody out there who's thinking that it's that we're lining our pockets uh, right. as the costs go up, that's no. It's that's not the case. At least not my pockets. It's not I, the case. I don't think so. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I'm glad that you are doing the work that you're doing in healthcare reform. I wish you all the best with this. I've been speaking with Dr. Dan Landry, who is a pediatric anesthesiologist who is now a um, working on his clinical practice and being an advocate for healthcare reform within Maine and throughout the United States. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Zach Mazzoni, DO, created Dayspring Integrative Wellness in Bath, Maine, with the belief that true health comes from building healthy relationships with your community, with your doctor, and with yourself. As a board-certified family and integrative medicine physician, Dr. Mazzoni and the whole staff at Dayspring are committed to supporting your wellness journey by providing integrative family medical care, osteopathic manipulation, herbal and lifestyle consultations, counseling, and wave therapy. Dayspring offers an innovative membership-based model of healthcare that gives you time together with Dr. Mazzoni to build a personalized wellness plan based on your health goals. Daily access for acute appointments is available, and you can even schedule a secure video conference call in the privacy of your own home. I know Dr. Zach and his family, and I believe strongly in the personalized whole-person approach to health that he provides. This is why I am encouraging you to find out more for yourself by visiting dayspringintegrativewellness.com or by calling them directly at 207-751-4775. Dayspring. Wellness. The way it should be. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, Art Collector Maine, GrownUpGirl.com, and by Dayspring Integrated Wellness. Our editorial producer is Kate Gardner. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasick. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Andrew King and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.